Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Empowered Living, the Resources of the Church, with a message entitled, Now to Him. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. When we think of worship, many people just think about singing. I mean, whether it's with a songbook in hand or with arms outstretched towards heaven, we sing for all we're worth. Yeah, it is true that singing is often involved, but worship is a celebration. It's a celebration of God. I know there are those who will immediately think that my definition of worship as the celebration of God, that's just a bit narrow. Typically, we speak of worship as attributing honor and homage to God, and we also know that in the First Testament, the worship of God involved the sacrifice of animals and prayers being made, and furthermore, in the New Testament, for instance, Romans 12, 1, we offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, and that's called our true and proper worship. And so it is true that we can see all activity done to the glory of God as worship. And yet behind all of it is the celebration of God. Think of it this way. People not only enjoy celebrating, they need to celebrate. If you have a favorite hockey team or a football team or a soccer team that wins the championship, it seems it's never enough just to win. The win needs to be celebrated before it's deemed complete. In the same way, it's not enough to simply think about God or to trust God or to obey God or to study theology or listen to sermons or even read scripture. At some level, we need to celebrate. We need to rejoice and therefore we need to sing. Listen to Psalm 47 verse 1. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Or Psalm 101 verse 1. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. Again, Psalm 47, verse 6. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. See, I think C.S. Lewis expressed the biblical mandate well when he said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. That is, we haven't come to terms with our God or what he has provided for us as his redeemed children until we begin to find celebratory ways to express that delight to God. You know, if the study of the Bible or the study of theology doesn't end in songs of worship, we're doing it wrong. The more we study God, the more we study what wonders he has performed for his children, the more the demand rises that we must celebrate. In Romans 1.21, Paul informs us that when we don't honor God as God and when our hearts aren't overflowing with thanksgiving, with gratefulness to him, at that time we become futile in our thinking, says Paul. Our foolish hearts are darkened. And I say all of that because in our study of Ephesians, We have come to the end of chapter 3. We've covered our resources in Christ, that every redeemed follower of Jesus has been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Furthermore, as we contemplate our salvation, we recognize that we were once dead in trespasses and sins, but because God is rich in mercy, he raised us to life with Christ at his resurrection. 
we've been justified by grace through faith, and if that weren't enough, we've also been made into one body, the church, consisting of Jews and Gentiles, all together partaking of the same covenant with our Lord. And Paul himself, overwhelmed at the resources God has given his people, has been on his knees. He's asked that God would strengthen believers to be steady in their inner being and that they'd also be filled with the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. What then at this moment should be said? And the answer is obvious. It's time to celebrate God. It's time to worship. So the last two verses in Ephesians chapter 3 has often been referred to as a kind of a doxology. Indeed, you might have heard those verses cited at the end of a church service. But they're more than a doxology. They are the words of celebration. So let's read them, shall we? Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I know it seems strange that I'm using two short verses for an entire teaching, but I think it would be a a tragic failure to give them any less attention than what they deserve. So let me explain. Paul's first words are now to him. And here Paul's referring to God the Father. Now he says, I have something to say about God the Father. To him be all the glory. To him be all the words of praise we can muster. To him be all the adoration we both feel and express. To him be ascribed all the attributes that showcase how majestic and beautiful he is. Now to him. But just before Paul gets to the words, to him be the glory, he says, to him who is able. When we think about God, when we talk about God, when we read about God, when we listen to a preacher preach about God, let's remember that the God who is the subject of our thoughts is the God of ability. Now to him who is able. He's the God of might and power. You might think as we talk about God's ability that, that every one of us has abilities of our own. And of course, we all have areas in our lives where we lack abilities. I was raised by a father who was able with his hands. He was a carpenter, and I often marveled at what his hands could produce. I knew that when my dad built a house, you could put a plumb line against any wall or put a level on any floor, put a square on any door frame or shine a beam against any angle of the roof, and you would never find even the smallest area that was not true. You know, I often heard of other builders marvel at how he managed such precision. He was able. He had real abilities. But my dad was definitely not a musician. He wasn't a public speaker, nor, I don't think, was he a man who would have started a company and hired workers. You see, what I say about him, I can say in some fashion about every one of us. We all have abilities, but we all have other areas where we do fall short. But when we speak about God and when we say of him, now to him who is able, when Paul says that, it's a word that theologians often call omnipotence. The word means that God is able to do all that he wills to do. Jeremiah 32 verse 17 says that nothing is too hard for the Lord. Ephesians 3 verse 20, we don't have a full expression of God's abilities. Rather, God's ability here has something to do with our prayers. We come to God and we ask things of God because we know that we are needy. After all, Paul has just expressed that he is praying for the Ephesian believers. He wants them to be strengthened in their inner being. 
No doubt they're facing struggles, and in their struggles, they might be weakening in their inner strength. But Paul is now in full-blown celebration of God. Now to him, he says, who is able, and watch this, to do all that we ask. It takes some time to take that in. There's not one thing that we might ask of God in which God would then respond by saying, wow, I'm just not able to do that. When we enter into the part of our prayer lives, when we make requests, and when we ask God for resources, or we ask God for encouragement, or we ask God for help in overcoming sinful habits, or we ask God for healing from a disease, or when we ask God for the ability to forgive the worst of our enemies, we ask God to help restore our relationship with our spouse, or when we ask God to give us strength when we face opposition, and slander. No matter what we ask, there is no lack of power in God to give us what we ask. Now, as you contemplate that, you might be thinking of 1 John 3, verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. That is, walk in the center of God's will. He's going to answer all your prayers. So whenever we walk in the center of God's will, that activity will shape the kind of things that we ask for. We won't be asking for the death of our enemies. We're not going to be asking for the riches that will make us self-indulgent. We'll pray those things that are at the center of God's will. And here's the key. There is no lack of power in God. But of course, you'll have noticed I've misquoted the verse. It didn't say, now to him who is able to do all that we ask. Indeed, it says, now to him who is able to do far more than all that we ask. That is to say, when we bring our request to God and God then looks at the measly request that we make out of our insecure nature, he responds by saying, yeah, I'll do that for there's no shortage in my ability, but I am able to do a great deal more than what you've asked me. See, I love to play the game Imagine. There are times in my life when God saved me from so many difficulties, and yet there are so many difficulties God has saved me from that I was not even aware of. Now, here's why I have to imagine. There must have been all manner of potential dangers. God stopped them before they even were allowed to occur. How could I thank God for what I don't even know about? In the same way, when I ask things, I don't know all that I truly need. What I ask falls short of my need, but God responds by giving me more. Whether on radio, online, in print, podcast, or YouTube, God continues to use this ministry to guide people back to the Bible and to encourage and equip them to search more deeply into Scripture. One listener wrote to say, God used your radio ministry to lead me to saving faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God, still learning and growing daily. Another wrote, I have just recently found Jesus and I'm grateful to be able to listen to your program while I'm at work. I have learned so much and you help bring me closer to God. You know, we recognize that this ministry could not be sustained without like-hearted, like-minded partners in mission right across Canada. Thank you for your prayers and support. And if you'd like to know more or make a gift toward our fiscal year-end campaign, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
James chapter four, verses three and four says of our unmet needs, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There's a mouthful in that. But for our purposes, let's concentrate on that one phrase. You don't have because you don't ask. You know, there's a discipline that God wants all of his children to learn. He wants us to ask him before he opens up his resources. So why is that? And he'll respond by saying, I want you to trust me. See, if God were to simply supply all our needs without us asking, we would soon forget the giver. God is not begrudging of giving good things to his children, but he does want his children to know that he is the author of every good and perfect gift. And so he tells us to ask. But as we've often seen, we are often poor askers. We don't ask for enough. Our eyesight often only sees our immediate need, not the long-term, altogether glorious resource that the Father wants to make available for his children. And so we ask, and when we ask, we're asking as if the resources of God are limited or the things that we need were so small and insignificant. It's hard for us to see the larger picture, how quickly that shows itself in the kinds of petitions that we bring before God. But the glorious truth about God is that he's able to do more than we ask. But again, I've misquoted the verse, haven't I? In truth, our passage says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask. That is, not only is he able to do more than we've been asking, he's doing abundantly more. The word abundantly means a considerable excess over what would be expected. The emphasis here is on the word excess. It would therefore be quite appropriate to translate this, that he is able to do excessively above what we've asked. You see? It's one thing to say that God is able to do more than we ask. That's a wonderful promise. But it would seem putting things this way is not enough. Instead, he does excessively more, to a degree that supersedes all previously existing categories. And when we think of excess, I'm ready to bet that most of us think of it in negative terms. Excessive spending, for instance, leads to unmanageable debts, we say. It's true. The person who spends excessively spends beyond all boundaries. You know, they may have needed a car, but what was wrong with a small car? I mean, why did they need to buy a luxury vehicle? That was excessive. They needed to eat, and so why couldn't they be content with groceries and making healthy meals in their home? I mean, why did every single meal need to be eaten in an upscale restaurant? Why they need to give a 50% tip all the time? That was excessive. I hope you're getting the idea. See, in most cases, excessive things are bad. The person who spends excessively doesn't have the funds to cover the expenses. They could have gotten along with much less. But when it comes to doing more than we ask, our God wants us to know that he's not only able to exceed our requests, but he's going to do it in such a lavish manner that puts us in a state of amazement. Oh God, not only do you answer when I call to you in my time of need, but you have so opened the vault of your resources that what I have received from your hand is more than in my wildest dreams I could have conceived. Ah, yes. And I have still misquoted the verse. Ephesians 2.20 actually says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And here's the thing about adding thinking to our asking. I ask in my times of prayer, but at times in my thinking, I'm aware of needs that I have that have never been a part of my prayers. But God has 
not only heard my prayers, but he's also searched out my mind. He's able to vastly exceed what I think. Peter O'Brien has said, not even the immensity of the request in the preceding verses, nor the unfettered ability of the human imagination can provide any limit to God's mighty ability to act. I hope you're getting a sense of the celebration of God. Paul includes at the end of this chapter. But then having said all of that, Paul now adds, this is according to the power that is at work in us. So what does that mean? Well, in order to understand that part of the sentence, I think it's necessary to go back to chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. See, in that section, Paul spoke about the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And then he added that this was the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Indeed, as we've studied Ephesians, you will have noticed that before we were in Christ, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were as unresponsive to God as a dead corpse would be unresponsive to whatever we might want to communicate to it. Dead, cold, unable to hear and see, unable to speak, and unable to even in the smallest way possible to respond to the voice of God. But remember how Paul used that word, but. But God, he said, but God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. Indeed, Paul says that God gave us life even as he gave the dead body of Jesus life. Now, here's the thing about giving life to the dead. Almost every other miracle tends to be understood in some fashion. You know, Jesus fed a crowd of 5,000 with a few bread and fish. He broke the bread in his hands and multiplied the elements. He took what existed and multiplied it. Or Jesus drove out demons, demonstrating his power over them. Or Jesus healed the sick and instantly repaired diseased or damaged organs. It's miraculous, but we can in some sense understand it. But what do we make of the power of the one who raises the dead? A dead, rotting, decaying, unresponsive corpse. And over it hovers our God who says, live. And then Paul adds the phrase, according to the power at work in us, Those words are supposed to be taken in concert with the words, now to him who is able. Now to him who is able to raise the dead. Having celebrated God's power for the good of those who believe, we come to verse 21. To him be the glory, says Paul. See, often when we speak of the glory of God, we often include the words, to him alone be the glory. And when we say that, we often mean, to God alone be the credit. See, I'll give you an example of what happened to me just the other day. I was meeting with a dear old friend whom I had served in ministry with years ago. He was the worship pastor of my church, and and in order to encourage me, my friend reminded me of the thousands who had come to Christ under my ministry during those days. He was looking out for me. He just wanted to be encouraging to me, and he was right. He continues to be a good friend, but as I thought about it, I thought, well, now, for the years that I ministered in that place, I never actually spoke my own words. I simply went through the Bible word by word, line by line, tried as best I could to restate the Bible's message to the people who heard me. They never were my words in the first place. And the Holy Spirit who honors the preaching of the word arrested the dead hearts of my hearers and many confessed their sins and they gloriously came to Christ. I'd love to say I did something, but I say this without any false humility, To God alone be the glory. I get none of the credit. He gets it all. That's what Paul is saying of the God who is able to do abundantly above all that we can ask or think. To him be the glory. 
say back to God that he gets all the credit. Revel in his power and in his grace to the objects of his delight. To him be the glory, says Paul, in the church. Yeah, give him glory for the creation of the church, this new humanity that experiences eternal life. Give him credit for having broken down the wall of hostility between Jew and Greek. That was definitely abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. Among God's people, ascribe to God that we are aware of his greatness, that we're aware of the mighty deeds that he has accomplished. To him be the glory in the church, and then also to him be the glory in Christ Jesus. See, that no doubt means to God be the glory that we, the church, are in Christ Jesus, that Jesus has become our Savior and Lord, and the sweetest and loveliest thing we know, that we have come into loving and joyful relationship with Christ. To him be the glory. God gets the credit for that. We take no credit at all. God did it, but we get the chance to revel in that, that God allowed us to be the children of Christ. Paul's still not done. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, he says. There's the most unique thing about the church. Yeah, the church is a new race of humanity. It's a new nation. It's a new temple. It's a new family. But the church also encompasses all generations. We're one church with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, also with Peter and Paul and John, also with Arrhenius and Athanasius and Augustine and Chrysostom and Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, along with Wesley and Whitfield and many others. A great company of those who are now in glory belong to the same church that we are a part of, and that's wonderful all generations and for all eternity, to God be the glory. Don't you want to shout and clap your hands and raise your hands, fall to your knees and sing, to God be the glory. Celebrate our wonderful God. John, thanks for your message today. You know, I think it's like so many things in life, we we gravitate towards our preferences, but it seems to just make sense that in a balanced spiritual journey, we must desire to both study the Word and celebrate God in our worship. Yeah, it's absolutely the case. You know, we get the people who are the, the, you know, the, the worshiping people, and on the other hand, you get the people that are the intellectual studiers. We are not monodimensional people. We are to love the Lord with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. So uh, let's allow ourselves to both worship and to study at the same time. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Empowered Living, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. So grateful to all those who have so generously participated in our fiscal year-end campaign. As you know, our goal by June 30th is still to raise $325,000 to sustain and develop Bible teaching and engagement programming across Canada and beyond. To do this, we utilize every effective medium at our disposal to make Bible teaching you can trust available online, on air, podcast, audio mail, and mobile apps offering audio, video, and print resources. As you may have heard, it's Dr. Newfeld's dream and the ministry at large to make the gospel known so that every Canadian would hear and need to make a choice 
as what to do with Jesus. So by June 30th, could we ask that you consider making a gift to the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.